This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, and Brian Murphy. Welcome to a special edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. It's our 2021 UCF Volleyball Preview, our spring 2021 UCF Volleyball Preview. Ostensibly, they're going to play in the fall. But I'm Jeff Sharon, along with Eric Lopez. And joining us in a little bit will be head UCF Volleyball coach Todd Dagenet. And hey, listen, UCF still the defending American Athletic Conference champions. It's been 13 and a half months since they beat Cincinnati in that amazing five-set match back in 2019. But they do still stand as the champions. And, uh, of course, remember last year, UCF, you know, with a season that wasn't quite as good in terms of record-wise, Eric Lopez, as it was the year before, but I would argue was in some ways more successful because not only did they repeat as conference champions, but they won the um, uh, but they won their uh, first-round NCAA volleyball game. First time the UCF volleyball has done that uh, in 17 years. It really was. And first, I'm glad you said spring, because when you mentioned it at the open there, I'm thinking, wait, are we in August? Did I miss the half the year? Like, I'm still confused. I'm <laughs> no, still I'm not. not I'm, not, I'm still not. No, I don't want to throw this. anybody into a panic here. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. I'm still not used to this. But nonetheless, you're right. It, it was fascinating, too, because of the high expectations going in after the a magical year year the year before and this team had some adversity they dealt with during the season there were some ups and downs and people wondered what would happen but they found it towards the end of the year they had that classic win over Cincinnati to win the conference tournament at home a five-set thriller then as you mentioned beat Florida State in five sets to win to get to the second round for the first time since 2003 and it's for the third time in the Division One era in program history. So as a result, with the nucleus back, high expectations, and I think one of the key questions will be with this group, not just for this spring, but potentially in the fall, because they got some extra swings here, no pun intended, is can this UCF group at some point be the first team in the Division One era to get to the round of 16? Because as you'll hear later uh, from McKenna Melville, which we had to did a media availability, they remember what it was like to be in that second round against Florida. They're hungry, and they understand, They want more. So mm-hmm. uh, that it's one of the many st- plot lines for this volleyball team uh, in this spring. So speaking of those plot lines, we're going to get into the big ones with head coach Todd Dashney, who, of course, became UCF's all-time winningest head coach uh, with the Knights' first-round victory over Florida State uh, in the NCAA tournament last year, uh, passing Laura White. But... Uh, uh, or, or passing uh, Lucy McDaniel, I should say, and uh, in the, and here he is on the cusp of you know really throttling up this program to reach new heights um, in this unusual unusual season. So we talk about the Knights' preparation through COVID nineteen and what to expect from the team uh, in the twenty twenty one spring season with head UCF volleyball coach Todd Dagenet. Here we are talking to head UCF volleyball coach Todd Dagenet. In January, days before his Green Bay Packers are ready to take on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC Championship game. game. Todd, you're usually just hanging out enjoying the playoffs at this time, but now here you are getting ready for this completely bizarre season. What is up, man? First of all, let's tell the truth. Um, I'm your guinea pig. You're you're trying this new experiment online, and you decided who can I go out and get – 
as the guinea pig, make all the mistakes, and then I'm good for Emily and for Cindy and for everybody else in the spring. I'm here just to be your guinea pig. So bring it. Let's just get it over with. <laughs> this is just unbelievable. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. You're gonna you're gonna call yourself the guinea pig. And we did this with Matt Wright last week. Come on, man. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely uh, third tier to uh, some of your previous people. That's oh. For sure. Get out of here with that. All right. So, all right. Well, let's, let's, let's talk real quick. All right. Last time. Let, we talked, let's start with the, the B team interviews. Let's no. go. All right. Well, the last time, the last time we talked, uh, it was when the pandemic was relatively new and you and your staff were trying to figure out how to coach during a pandemic. We thought that there might be a fall season. Then it got pushed back. You know, I'm not asking you to recount all that, but I guess my question for you is, what was the most surprising thing about the, de- you know, the, the delay of the season and coaching in a pandemic that compared to when we talked the last time, you're like, wow, I wasn't anticipating that. You know, my first thought is why didn't we play? Why, why are the fall sports just starting? And thank goodness we're having a season, but looking back, I, I still think that canceling and going off the deep end over, Uh, all of this Uh, football has proven that we can do this safely. What's changed since September and October, nothing except, you know, we've got a vaccine on the horizon, which is wonderful news. Um, But I I still don't understand why we could not put in even a partial season, just like we're doing right now. Um, I really would have liked to see the fall sports play in the fall, have that season done, get a semester of training and break, then pick it up again as a full season 2021. But, you know, it's not like anything, any administrator, coach could even predict they would have to deal with. And, you know, I'm sure the best decision at that point was put a halt to everything to really try to evaluate what was going on. And I think that's what we did. I think everybody took a step back. Football had to go on. I mean, football pays the bills and got to make sure that, um, got to make sure that football has their ability to have as much of a season as possible. And looking back, the amazing job that our sports medicine crew, that our team doctors, that our administration put in um, just to make sure that it wasn't UCF that was the cause of any cancellations. We played a full season. We played the best season that we could. Um, And not many schools can say that. And I think that's one thing that makes UCF special. What did you guys do over the fall? Because I because I, I know that there were practices, obviously, but um, you know you were still trying to practice physical distancing as best we could. So, what kind of stuff did you get in during the fall, and were you satisfied with where the team was after all that? You know, it's uh, it's a, it works in phases. Uh, so we came in and we were spread out on three courts, no more than a couple people per court, waves on and off, making sure that uh, everybody was socially distant, testing once a week. Um, We progressed from stage one to stage two where we could be a little bit closer. Um, And then we progressed quickly into stage three. Stage three was without masks, basically uninhibited as long as we didn't have any positive tests. We went through the whole fall without any positives, which was uh, a tribute, I think, to our team and understanding how contagious this thing is and and, uh, really minding their P's and Q's as college athletes it's not always easy, but our team has always been very dedicated to what they do. 
And uh, we came out of the fall with about, I don't know, 10 weeks, 11 weeks of some pretty good training. Um, once we knew that we weren't going to have a fall season, we kind of treated it more like our spring where we do mostly individuals. And then we get together a couple days a week. We do some six on six and some system work. Um, so it was basically typically, you know, spring is 14 weeks. We break it down six weeks of individual, eight weeks of competitive, something like that. Uh, ended up being uh, a spring season in the fall is what we did. But I think that was different is that we really cut back on the time. Instead of going five days a week, we only went three days a week with an extra day for lifting. So um, we tried not to pound them knowing that this was going to be a condensed spring and that there's going to be a lot happening in a very short amount of time. And how big of an adjustment has that been, not just for you, but for your colleagues in this sport, I mean, you know, you and I have done many interviews in the spring when you've been over at softball talking about the spring and what you were working on you, that it would be the time when you would experiment with certain things within your team. Obviously there's the recruiting aspect of it. And all of a sudden now it's like backwards. So as for you and the sport, how has this been like from an adjustment standpoint? You know, honestly, I thought at the very beginning, it was going to be like, a meteor shower, Armageddon, cats and dogs playing with each other. I mean, you thought the end of the world was coming. And looking back, it really wasn't that bad, honestly. Um, we got some really good training, got some good strength and conditioning, uh, got to put some meat on the bones of our younger players, incoming players, transfers, um, because we started late as, you know, we're waiting for a return to protocol. And uh, so we started quite late. Um, we lost that six weeks of summer training that we normally get. So our, we had a lot of bodies that weren't ready to compete. And so I think you look back, it's almost a blessing in disguise because and we lost that six weeks. Sure. We lost our training in the fall, but we were able to make up for that six weeks with 13 or 14 strong weeks of training heading into the spring. Your last, uh, competitive match against uh, another school was 13 and a half months ago. That was, uh, that was the weekend up in Gainesville. You got uh, when you got the victory over Florida state uh, and, uh, and followed by the loss in the second round to Florida. Yeah, but thanks, I mean, what, thanks for the reminder. I, <laughs> but hey, this guy you came I mean, through, but you came through with the, the, that incredible five set match to win the conference against, uh, against Cincinnati. And, uh, and, Obviously, there were high hopes considering if we were going to have this, you know, the regular fall season. Do you st still have those expectations now or have they or, or have they changed at all, given how the, the seasons played out? You know, looking back, last year was really special for a lot of different reasons. The 14 team that won the conference championship, I thought they were dominant. They were clearly the best team in the conference. Um I didn't think anybody could touch them. Now they lost a couple matches, but it was more, you know, teams got hot and we weren't hot that night. Um, but that 14 team was dominant. Uh, and then the 18 team, same way. I thought they were dominant um, across the conference. Um, so the 19 team comes along. Cincinnati is really maturing. Tulane is really maturing. Uh, SMU's maturing. Houston's maturing. And all of a sudden now, it's a horse race and you knew that Cincinnati was far and above the best team in the conference. They had one of the best players in the country. 
Um, you knew they were a top 10 or 15 team. But then after that, there was us, Tulane, Houston, SMU. I mean, I could list probably six or seven schools that you had no idea what was going to happen. With that being said, I thought we had talent. I thought that we had a chance to do some good things. And as the season progressed, our only two losses to Cincinnati, um, you know, preseason uh, wins, you know, pre some pretty big wins in the preseason, knocking off some top 10, top 15 teams. So I knew we had the talent. I knew it was there. But I also knew that Cincinnati was really tough. And when we went up there and we played them, honest to goodness, it was a bloodbath. It was bad. Um, we played horribly. They played like Cincinnati and the match was over in an hour. Uh, we thought maybe we could learn, get better as the year went on and, and give them more of a match when they came down here. And we did. Gave them a little bit more of a match, but we were still light years away from them. So what made last year so special is that the team started off at a certain point and they slowly began to rise as the year went on. And then all of a sudden just shot up into a peak. And I had never seen that before in a team that I've coached here at UCF. And I don't think I've ever seen it before in any team in 20 plus years that I've coached. So last year was really special because it's proof that if you just keep working and eventually a light bulb might go off at the right time. And if it does, you can take advantage of it. And that's exactly what we did. Not only did the light bulb go on, but we took advantage of it. What was the light bulb? What, what was the thing that when you look back on it, what was the moment where, the, where everything flipped for that team? You know, I just think practices started getting better. I thought we were executing better. I thought our numeric metrics that we use, um, they, they just started to look better. Um, the silly mistakes were going down. We were looking for error percentages in the 11, 12% range. We we're starting to get eight and nine. And I've never had a team do that before. And we're thinking, gosh, we're so low air. If we could increase our offensive output while being so low air, we could really put this together. And that's exactly what happened. Once we got into that tournament, we were low air all the way through the American tournament, all the way through that match with Cincinnati, very low air. And same thing with Florida State, we were very low air. Um, and then when we go against Florida, we just run into a Final Four caliber team. Um, but that really made it special for that light bulb to come on, the airs to come down, to get comfortable with who we are. It took a whole season to get there. But boy, talk about a team peaking at just the right time. Yeah, peaking at the right time, and one player in particular, McKenna Melville, who had that memorable 2020 game in the win against Florida State. She was just recently voted the preseason conference player of the year. Just talk about her, what you've seen from her in the fall, and, and her match. You know, she's only entering her third year. She's on track to shatter a lot of the program records. It's remarkable what she's accomplished in her first two years now as she enters her third year. You know, she came in as a freshman. And if you walked into our gym, you would have thought she was a junior already. Uh, the confidence, the swagger, the, the, the knowing she can go out there and play with everybody, which is ironic because as a club player just two years before, she was about five foot six playing Libro for her club team out of Minnesota. And then she goes and grows, goes and grows uh, four or five inches and all of a sudden is playing in the 18 open national championship going slug for slug with the number three recruit in the nation who's playing at Texas. 
And so she's had that confidence, brought it right into the gym right away. And I thought that changed the complexion of the gym a little bit because it's like, wow, okay, that's a nice addition to the team. Heading into her sophomore year, you know, she had her ups and downs through the year. And I thought that's because she holds herself to a really high standard. And the more pressure she put on herself, the worse her performance got. And she took it that she, you know, she had to be great every night for us to win. I think once she realized she didn't have to be great every night, she had to be like a Michael Jordan who makes everybody else around her good every night. She can still win. And so what I saw as a sophomore, which honestly made me think she was player of the year last year, is on bad nights, she was making other players around her better. She wasn't drawing attention to herself. She wasn't sulking. She was keeping the energy up no matter how many bad passes, how many attacks out of bounds. She was keeping everybody else's spirit up. Everybody said, you know what? We're okay. We're fine. We're going to get through this. And there were a lot of tough matches where she played not McKenna standard, but everybody else played above their standard because of how she was. And so now I'm hoping you know, she kind of puts all that together where she gets to be more of a consistent player like a Jordan Thompson at Cincinnati was last year. Um, but the one thing that I really respect about McKenna is that she makes everybody around her better. She might not jump 10-10. You know, she might uh, not do a lot of the things that maybe some other players can do, but she is the quintessential glue of a team. And to be a championship caliber team, no matter how many newcomers or young players you have, you have to have that type of person. It's only a bonus if they can go out there and give you a steady number of points or kills every night. And that's not something you could teach. That's something that either you have it or don't. And it seems like the great ones have that, right? That they making everybody better. There's that confidence. Hey, we got her on the court. We saw that with Cincinnati. We've seen that for the last handful of years with Jordan Thompson. They were obviously a different team when she was on the court than when she wasn't. There's that presence. And I feel like McKenna brings that to your program. I think Delana Sarden was another one that had that when you coached her, right? Right? Is that kind of where absolutely. you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Because when you feel like you have the best player on the floor on your side of the net, you feel like no matter what the score says or how many games you're down, you still got a chance. Now you still got a puncher's chance of getting back into it. Um, and that's what McKenna brings for us is that even if we find ourselves in a tough situation, we still got a puncher's chance of getting back into it if we're patient. And we look for our spot, take one here, take one there, stand back up, and you know, try to outlast the other team. You may not out-pretty them, but you just outlast them. One of the other players who I think really benefits from that is and and has over the last few years is Anne Marie Watson from you know you know where you found her right up the road right from Haggerty, and she is just miss consistency out there. And again, she and McKenna were both picked all conference, and you know I feel like she doesn't quite sometimes get enough of the love from around the conference and around the nation that. Uh, that she deserves because she kind of plays a little bit in McKenna's shadow, but, um, but how instrumental has her growth been for your team playing on that other side from McKenna? Cause teams can't load up on, on 20. They have to worry about 32, don't they? They do. You know, and what's interesting about, I love this story about Anne Marie is that we knew of Anne Marie, um, 
but she really wasn't on the top of our radar. Uh, she came to our summer camp because she wanted to show us that she could play. And I remember I was on another court and they were playing some games on, on another court and they were playing with the radar gun, trying to see who could hit the hardest. And in our gym, we used 50, 51 miles an hour as a, you know, that's a pretty good number in college volleyball. If you're hitting somewhere that 50 to 55 range, that's dropping a bomb right there, you know? And some, one of the camp coaches said, Hey, you got to come over here. This kid just popped 51 on the speed gun. Like there's no way that a kid in it's a junior in high school popped a 51, much less this kid who's six one and weighs 105 pounds. Well, sure enough, she did. And that's when all of a sudden we got really serious about her and we got lucky with her because she was a, a little bit of a late bloomer and uh, we were able to get her in a black and gold Jersey, fortunately being not you know too far away, very supportive parents. And now all of a sudden this kid that kind of fell in our lap ends up being um, you know, one of the main cogs in the whole wheel that we have going on here that we built more than her attacking and more than her ability to take some of the pressure off McKenna is the fact that Anne-Marie might be the best pure blocker that I've ever coached in my life. Um, if I'm not mistaken, she's already broken the single season record. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, she's broken the season and has a chance to break the block assist career record. Yeah. Uh, she's in striking distance of UCF Hall of Famer Tyra Harper, who's in your ring of honor, might be the greatest of all. And she's got a chance to break her record, which has lasted a long time. And Tyra, who's a national team member on top of yep. it. Uh, you know, I, that's, that's really what she does is because she gives the opposing left side hitter, the main hitter, right? Somebody else is McKenna Melville. She gives them a hard time every night. They have to think about how are they going to get around her? Because not only is she up there and pressing and blocking on their side of the net, she has great vision and she can move her hands and they have to worry about her. Um, and just that alone has caused hitting errors for great players. Um, Single-handedly, uh, she shut down Jordan Thompson two years in a row. Um, I remember the, in the, in the 18 year, we played him twice and she had over 21 blocks against Jordan. I mean, Jordan had been blocked 21 times the entire year. And, uh, then, you know, we had, obviously we had our troubles with them during the regular season, but now we get into that pivotal game and she blocks Jordan six out of eight times. And that's where she changes the game because it's like having that, 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 that shut down cornerback that you just don't throw to their side of the field. Um, that's what she does for us. You, you have to know where Anne Marie is because if she gets her hands on your side of the net, she's going to give your hitter some problems. So as much as McKenna gets all of the accolades, we have so many other players in the team that, that really deserve a piece of the pie. Anne Marie, of course, is at the top of that list. You got a good core returning this year too. Um, you know, even though you even though you're you lose one half of the Olsen twins, who are not twins, but we call them the Olsen twins anyway. Um, Narissa Moravik is back. Uh, we'll probably see more of Fabi Ribas as well. We're going to see. I imagine we're going to see more of the Chambers twins as well. Catherine Westlich is back in the middle. Who are you out of your returning players expecting to see a real uh, expecting to see make the leap this year? I think there's a couple players. I think you're going to see Mackenzie Chambers take a leap this year. 
Um, you know, she got a taste of starting last year. I think she, it's really tough for a freshman to play right side, um, especially with the schedule that we played. Um, and, and she kind of ran out of gas as the year went on. That just, that's the lack of strength conditioning before you make it to a college team. Um, and, you know, fortunately, Allie Sable, with all that experience, was able to step in and have a wonderful, amazing um, finish to the season to put us in position to do what we did. I think you're going to see Mackenzie take that step this year where she's going to be able to play a whole season at a very steady level. I think you're going to see uh, Narissa um, become more of an option. Um, last year, I think, you know, she – blocking she is top in the nation top 10 in the nation and attacking we just didn't get her enough balls we weren't able to give her the ball like we did with Delena and Kay back on the 14 team I think we're gonna be able to get Narissa the ball a lot more that's gonna alleviate a lot of the pressure off of McKenna as well the other player I think is gonna take a big step is Kat Westlich um, another player we weren't able to get the ball to enough um, but her athleticism and her ability to get into an open space, her arm speed is so much faster this year. Her hand contact is a lot better this year. I think we're going to try to look for her every opportunity that we get. So I, I think there's three players right there that had a role last year, all of which are far better this year than they were last year. You know, the question mark remains who fills Christina Fisher's spot. That, that's a lot of points we have to make up for. And, um, you know, I think Anne Marie and I think Mackenzie can hold down the right side. Should we choose to run a six, two, um, but who's going to fill in that, that other outside spot opposite of McKenna. I mean, we're still in battles for that right now. And I don't think that's going to be figured out until, you know, seven, eight matches into the year, just before we hit conference. Um, we've got a lot of players that are vying for it. They all have their pluses and minuses, and we're just going to kind of see how it filters out. But uh, right now there's a lot of competition for that spot. And we're just waiting for somebody to really step up and say, this one's mine. Two, two of the other spots I wanted to ask you about too, um, you know, on the libero side, because Mackenzie Kuchmanner was a grad transfer and was just a tremendous contributor last year after Jordan Pingle moved on. Uh, and now she's moved on. So the libero position kind of opens up. And then it's Setter where Erin uh, Olson graduated after, you know, after she came over. What a leader she's been for you for the last three years. And uh, even, though her, even though her younger sister Amber is still around, you know, I know you liked last year and for the last several years, you've run that 6-2 um, where you switched the two of them out. So what, what's the plan for Setter and what's the plan for the libero position? Well, you want me to tell our opponents everything, don't you? <laughs> so, uh, you know, no, the me, other, they're not going to watch this. Trust me. They're not going <laughs> to. Sure they won't. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's the other player that's really improved is Amber. Um, you know, Amber spent uh, two years behind her sister uh, in her shadow, but learning a lot. Amber's a much bigger setter, probably by about four inches, uh, much uh, bigger hands, bigger jump. Amber's more of a gunslinger. Aaron was more of a surgical tactician. Um, Amber's a bit more, got a little bit more of a, you know, a gunslinger's mentality. And uh, she's really improved in the off season and through the fall training. So I think Amber's going to run the offense far differently than what her sister did. Um, she's going to take a little bit more risk. Um, she's going to try to spread the ball around a little bit more. 
Um, and, and I think we're going to see a lot of improvement there. She's going to step into a setter one role pretty easily. Now, should we decide to run the 6-2 again? You know, Drezzy Pass actually breaking camp last year was the starting setter. And then Amber came along not too far after and, and took that spot and finished the year running a 6-2 with her sister. Drezzy continues to get better. Um, I'm, I'm really happy with her numbers and her metrics right now. Emily Lawrence is, is a highly recruited um, setter coming again from right here in Orlando, played for top select volleyball club, who is a uh, national champion and in the open division. So she's playing with and against the best the country has to offer. So it's going to be about her trying to adjust to the college game. Like we talked about with the freshmen. But, you know, I sure like where Drezzy is right now as well. Um, so if we decide to run a 5-1 with Amber, we've got the ability to do that. We want to go a 6-2. We've got the right sides. And then we've got the second setter with Drezzy. We can do that. There's a lot of options we have in that position. Now, you talked about the libero. Um, I think, you know, Fabi, you know, Fabi certainly is going to be part of the consideration. Um Ariana, who transferred in from Wichita State, she was their starting libero last year. And uh, I'm sorry, not last year. The last time we played, um, she was their starting libero and played terrific. And she's been in the gym and she's doing a great job. Um, and then Chloe Schneer coming in as a freshman from San Diego, another national contender, national championship level team. So uh, there's going to be a lot, of, uh, a lot of battle there in that position, not only to be the starting libero, but to be the first DS off the bench who might sub in for somebody. So I'm pretty happy with where we are in that position right now. Um, Our ball control has to be good. If our ball control is good, makes it easy for our setter. And if our setter is good, three hitters are going to be one-on-one a lot. And if they are, we have that ability to be a better team than last year. Now we're not there yet. Um, I think this break, this time off has uh, really uh, put a disruption into our development. Um, I understand a lot better now why football felt like they were out of sync. I understand the false start penalties those first two games. And I think the, the layman fan says, well, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, with some of the mistakes that we're making in the gym, you know, I understand how you can go 14 false starts in two games, you know, or our basketball team, struggling to gel together without practice and play time. Uh, I, I, we, we see it every day in gym. I mean, there's some days in the gym that we're not good at all. And then there's some days I feel like we're better than we were last year, but that's the inconsistency of being off as long as we were not being in a normal routine of practice and play practice and play. So to be honest, I, you know, I don't know what it's going to be like, cause I don't know, you know we're supposed to be playing Friday and Saturday. That's not happening now. And we're going to play that Monday and Tuesday, hopefully. And um, I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, I was talking to the team today about the coaches are asking you to be on the razor's edge all the time, right? You're, you're on the competitive razor's edge. And then you find out you're not playing. And then next week, you're on the competitive razor edge. And then you're not competing. You just never know when you're going to compete and when you're not. It's almost like a soldier sitting in the trenches wondering when the fight's coming to them. So it's, we're just going to have to do the best we can, stay as sharp as we can, 
um, compete when we can and uh, just try to work our way through this. But the goal you, you'd asked before, what's the goal? Well, the goal is the three peat that there's no other, there's no, this it, for us, it's three peat or it wasn't the season that we wanted. We've got, when you would talk about that schedule a little bit too, because it's weird this year, how the conference decided to do it. No UConn. So the sides are uneven and you're only playing your side, which is Cincinnati temple, ECU, USF, and you guys, Meanwhile, SMU, Tulane, Houston, Wichita, Tulsa, and Memphis are all on their side. And then the tournament's going to be up in Cincinnati. That's going to be kind of weird. And you're playing two matches against each opponent in the same place. This is, this is, <laughs> this is like, this is weird, right? I mean, this is, well, I, it's, I, it's what do you not think? much different than what a lot of uh, other conferences are doing. Um, remember, uh, I want to say it was our last year, maybe in Conference USA, we played this series format where you played the same team back to back. That was to save on travel and to save on a lot of different things. Um, so it's not unprecedented. Baseball does it all the time. Softball does it all the time. Yeah. So it's not really that big of a deal, honestly. Now, the thing I, that I think is a big deal personally is that every other major conference in the country figured out how to play a double round robin. And I don't know, maybe it's our geography, maybe, you know, who knows why. But for whatever reason, our conference settled in on splitting off into two separate entities and just playing each other. I'm pretty disappointed by that because it really affects uh, bigger things, NCAA aspirations, things like that. I mean, only getting eight matches to be you know, considered for an NCAA at large, you have to have a resume. You have to have 20 wins. You have to, so that there's not enough time to go out and schedule enough teams to build up the RPI and get 12 more wins. So it's going to be a challenge for our conference to get an at-large bid this year. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that, you know, we were one of the first ones to make the decision on how we're going to play our conference. I'm a bit disappointed we didn't revisit it and take a look at going with a double round robin because, you know, there's 10 major conferences, 11 major conferences maybe for volleyball. They're all doing some sort of a double round robin. We're the only one that's not. So it's a bit disappointing, but, you know, whatever, we, we play those eight matches and I think we've got seven or eight non-conference matches scheduled. Just put them on our schedule. We'll play the people in front of us and uh, we'll go out and do the best we can. Well, I mean, at least the rest of the conference thinks you're doing just fine because you got every first place vote that you could have. I know that uh, teams can't vote for yourself. So I know you voted for Cincinnati in the preseason conference poll. Gosh, but... I tried to keep that secret. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, we can't, we can't vote for ourselves. Uh, I gave Cincinnati the nod. I felt like that was probably the right thing to do. Um, look, I, I don't know if we're number one. I'm honestly, I, I don't know if we're number one. I don't know anybody that's number one because we've all gone through this, not playing for 13 months, being off a of training for so long, having that month and a half break after Christmas, cramming a preseason together, playing little to no matches, sitting out because of COVID. I mean, there's two teams in our conference that just started practicing today. And as, as we're shooting this, this is Tuesday um, on, on, you know, the week of opening weekend. So it's, I don't know that there's a number one team. There's a lot of really great teams in our conference. It's going to be who stays healthy, who doesn't have the contact tracing, who's going to be able to put their full complement to players on the floor, who can win on the road. 
there's a lot of factors that are going to go into it this year. And the other thing is, you know, that's, that's great that they look at us at number one. I don't think a number one preseason team has actually won the conference since I've been in the conference. So us coaches don't know what we're talking about. Um, but I guess we're going to go out there and try our best to be the first team to live up to that expectation. Well, it all starts uh, with a couple of matches against FAU. One is an exhibition match, and that is scheduled for is, – is that right on the schedule, Monday, January 25th, 4 p.m.? Well, we, we decided um, to kind of give the fans a black and gold scrimmage on Friday because there's going to be a lot of parents right. that were, were going to be in town to, to see us play FAU. So we'll do a black and gold, and, and we'll use it as dress rehearsal, get ready for FAU. Now, the FAU match, Monday, 4 o'clock – is going to be a scrimmage um, that's going to allow us to really play with a bunch of different lineups. Really doesn't matter who wins and who loses, just trying to get players some playing time. Tuesday, the season begins for real. That's at four o'clock. Um, now we're playing FAU. This That's what matters in terms of record RPI, if there's going to be one. Um, but that that's when it really begins in earnest. Yep. January 26th, you start with six at home before you go to Temple to start the conference season. Miami's coming on February 26th on a home and home and then ECU and South Florida at home before the American Championship Tournament, which will be at Cincinnati April 2nd and 3rd NCAA tournament starts April 9th. So off we go. It's going to be a Naruto run to the uh, to the to this season, Todd. Here we go. We're ready. I mean, we're going to we're as ready as we're going to be. Our minds are in the right place. Practices are spirited. People are playing hard, not always well, but hard. And I don't think it's any different than any other gym in the country. So it's going to be about being good at the right time. And that's what we'll try to do. All right. Well, here's some more of that. The all-time winningest head coach in UCF volleyball history. You knew I was going to get it. that in. I hate it. <laughs> Todd Dagenet joining us here on the Black and Gold Banner Podcast. Todd, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you. Stay safe, stay healthy. Good luck this season. We'll be seeing you. Uh, we'll be seeing you on that uh, on that opener against FAU. Sounds good. And thanks a lot for all your help and support, both of you. Uh, you know, to keep our sport in the forefront of everybody's mind is important. So thank you. Thanks again to Todd, who is always a joy for us to talk to. You know, I've known him for such a long time, ever since he got here to UCF, and and he's a good friend. He's always been supportive of us. So we're really, really thankful that he takes the time for for us to talk about volleyball. And it's always fun to talk about it with him, especially, you know, we got a team as loaded as this one coming into uh, this unusual spring season. So make sure you follow Todd, give him a follow at UCF VB Todd, UCF VB Todd on Twitter. He's great on Twitter too, by the way. All right, Eric and I'll be right back in a second. We'll uh, hear from uh, a couple of UCF players, McKenna Melville and Amber Olson, uh, and kind of give our own little takes on uh, the UCF volleyball season. Uh, coming up after the break. Stick around. This special volleyball preview edition of the Black and Gold Banneret podcast is back after this. Welcome back to our spring 2021 UCF volleyball preview special. Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez with you. We just heard from head coach Todd Dagenet, uh prior to uh, prior, in the prior segment. And now, Eric, you and I get to chat, get to sort of break some of that down. I thought that um, I mean, Todd's always, if there's one thing I know about him, he's really good at kind of keeping things close to the vest, you know, he's like, ah, you know, we'll be, you know, we will, we'll be all right. I think, you know, in the, in the past, you know, but I'm like, sometimes I'm like, come on, man, this team's, <laughs> you're in really good shape this year. And I, I do think that the team is in really good shape because 
you know, they they didn't lose that many. Um, uh, you know, obviously they lost Christina Fisher and uh, and Lachey Harper, so some size in the middle and a really good um, you know left side hitter who kind of spelled McKenna Millville quite often. But they get to load up with some of these newcomers, and I think what also plays in their favor, Eric, is the fact that uh, and, and you know maybe I'm it, it, maybe it might be unusual here, but the fact that the schedule is relatively short, I think bodes well for UCF because um you know they're going to stay pretty fresh when the American tournament and the NCAA tournament come around. Yes and no. Obviously, in the climate that we're in, fingers crossed. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Fingers crossed for everybody. Let's get that out of the way. Um yes there is. But remember, we spoke about this earlier. Last year it wasn't smooth sailing. They had some bumps on the road, but because yeah. it was a lengthy season, they could overcome it. Now, you can't really get off. You can't have a bad stretch. Yeah, with 16 16 matches total before the right. tournament. Although, although I will say though, Elo, 11 of them are at home. Well, that helps. But here's the thing. Keep this in mind for those that may not be aware. Uh, the NCAA tournament this year will be 48 teams, not 64. So by the, and the reason I bring that up is there is not as much room for error as there would be in a normal season. And you and I have discussed this in previous podcasts in volleyball. One of the issues that the sport has is brands. You know that those spots which have been shrunk are mm-hmm. going to go. The majority of those are going to go to Big Ten teams and Pac-12 teams. So. It's not like – and this league has had a, has had to fight just to get two teams into the tournament. Now there's less room, and it's funny. Like, the, my concern is this team could win the regular season title and yet have to go to Cincinnati to win the automatic bid, which I think is unfair. And I wish that the league would have thought about that better. And I understand why they did it. They wanted to reward the team that wins the regular season title. But yeah. I wish they would have gone the – soccer out which is if you win the regular season title you get to host personally yeah uh, so there are some nerves there that concerns from the standpoint of that schedule but you bring up a great point 11 matches at home pretty favorable travel a team that's been dominant under coach Dagenet, especially over the last five six years at home a group that's used to being at home they're they're the, there's a reason they're the overwhelming favorites as they should be in the league yeah, and, and that's not to say that you know that they're not going to get any challenges. I do think that even with fewer teams on their side of the American, we talked about how the um, the American conference actually shakes out, where they basically split the conference into two sub conferences, and UCF is in the side with fewer teams. Well, one of those teams is Cincinnati, obviously, who gives UCF trouble. Tulane is is they they're another team that I think you really have to watch out for, at least on that side. Um, and then South Florida, you just don't know what you're going to get from them. I think ECU and Temple, obviously, they're struggling. They're still trying to rebuild. But, you know, I think that does bode well for UCF. And, and then the thing is, I think this is good about being in the state of Florida, too, Eric. In that schedule, UCF plays all these home matches against non-conference foes like UNF, Stetson, and FAU. And then they get that home and home against Miami. And I think that's that was so critically important to get, you know, to play you know, one power team at least twice uh, in uh, and you got Miami from the ACC and it's going to be a a home and home on the last weekend in February. So um, I think that is going to be absolutely critical for UCF going forward, isn't it? 
It is. It's very critical. And, you know, it helps when you have arguably the best player in the state on your roster in one McKenna Melville, who is just entering her third year, Jeffrey, entering her third year preseason player of the year pick in the American. There's no more Jordan Thompson. Right. She would have been the preseason player of the year last year were it not for Jordan Thompson. Correct. Well, Jordan Thompson has moved on, and this is now McKenna's time. And on Thursday, media availability, McKenna spoke to the media alongside Amber Olson, and I asked her, what is it like, McKenna, bringing, uh, getting ready for a season in the spring? It just feels completely different. I mean, just everything, school-wise, home, at-home life, everything just seems different. So I think to prepare for yourself, you really just have to play a lot of games. And a lot of games happen in practice, a lot of six-on-six six and everything like that. And it's really hard right now because we don't have those games. So to be able to kind of practice against each other, I think, is the best way for all of us to kind of gain experience in how we're going to get better throughout the season. Ask both of you, uh, starting with you, Amber, and then McKenna, just talk about the the advantage of having an experienced group back. You've won the conference championships. You knew you're going to be the favorites again. Has that helped you through all this, the fact that you've play together I know there's some new faces but for the most part there's a lot of experience back you've been through a lot of the battles and know what it's it like has that helped you get through this process instead of being a, a brand new team if you will I mean I think just having that experience and having that ability to know the person next to you has definitely helped with us and be able to lean on each other a little more and then having the fresh faces in there has just been like an added bonus because they bring new life to the gym. They bring new energy and things that we just needed that we're missing are being brought in from those new people. But having the experience, I think is going to be very helpful in the future for us. No, you're good. Um, I think we have a lot of um, a a good core, you know, we have that good group and then we have all those new faces that are going to fit into that core somehow. It's just a matter of how they're going to fit. And I think, that's what's special about this year is we got that extra time in the beginning with those new faces. We got those two or three months or whatever with seven new faces on our team that, you know, we knew their names and maybe that was about it, but now we know how they fit into our core group. We know how they fit into our family. And I think that's really important. And that's kind of why it's a good thing almost that we had that time in the beginning because of how many new faces we had. I feel like that time in that beginning just kind of like made the core group grow even larger. Like, we now have experience because they all like usually we play right away and they don't have experience of being a college athlete. And now we have experience of being a college athlete and they know what it means to go through a season already of practices. And now it's just going to be bringing them up to game speed, which I think they'll be ready to do because we've been playing six on six all fall in our own practices. Want to go back to Gainesville, the NCAA tournament, the thrill of victory, uh, beating FSU and 24 hours later, uh, the season ending against the Gators. How does that loss motivate you, fuel you to uh, to go further this season? I don't even know if it's the loss or just being there that also motivates us. I mean, we got there and we're like, yes, that's one step. And then we beat FSU and we're like, oh my gosh, that's one step farther than we were the year before. And then, of course, we lost to the Gators. But again, so the, we did stepping stones the last two years. So now we're trying to take that next step. And I think that's the motivation. You know, it's a staircase. So we got to step one the first year. We were freshmen. Now we're trying. Then we got to step two as a sophomore. Okay, so now what are we going to try and do as juniors? We're leaders now on this team. So how are we going to get the rest of this group kind of building together to go to that next step? I think that's kind of what we're working towards 
Um, just as a leader standpoint, I think that's what we're working towards. We know where that next step is. Some people, you know, seven new faces have never seen that side of the game. So to bring them with us, some of them are going to come with, some of them aren't going to understand, and some of them are going to be fully on board. So to be able to get a good chunk of us to be like, hey, we're dedicated. This is the next step. Let's go to step three. I think it's pretty big. A uh, question for McKenna. Talk about Anne-Marie Watson and what she brings to the team. Obviously, an all-conference member preseason. Amber, you could follow McKenna as well on this question. Uh, what does Anne-Marie mean to your team and what she brings to the table? I mean, she's steady Eddie. I think we, we've had her for ever since I've been here, and she's just been level. You know that she's going to perform the way she's going to perform, and she's going to do it every time to the best of the best of her ability. So to have that ease on the court, hey, I know that Amory is going to be the one to get the kill. I know that she's going to be getting those blocks. I know, I know, I know. To have the I know behind Amory's name, I think is something that every athlete strives for. So to be able to say. I know Amory's going to do blank is, and you could fill it in with basically anything I think is something huge. And that's why she's getting the awards she's getting and the recognition. Yeah. I mean, being a setter and being able to count on hitters to know that if I give them the ball, they're going to be able to put it away. Or when we're in a tight situation and I don't know where to go and she's always there calling the ball, doing everything she needs to, to in order to put herself in the best possible position to do what she needs to do is huge. And just having her experience on the court with us as well is something that can never be taken away from her because she knows what it takes to win. And that's huge as well. AAC preseason player of the year. What was your reaction when you heard it and what pressure do you feel from it? Um, you know, I was excited. Obviously it's cool to get some of these awards, but again, it's not a personal award. It's a team award. Um, Cause I need a pass, I need a set, and I need to try and get the kill. I need, you know, we all have to work together in order to get it. And like Todd said, I don't know if you guys read the quote or whatever, but I would trade that in for any team award we would ever get. So to be able to have that is something, yes, it's a target, but again, I like targets. I think targets are fun to play with, and I like to go out there and I like to show them that, hey, you know, UCF, we do have a target on our backs, but we're going to show that we deserve to have that target on our back, and I think that's big. McKenna, just tell us the story, how you ended up at UCF coming from the Midwest. And then I know 20 is a, is a number you like. That's the number you wear. Tell us the story behind the number and why you're wearing 20. Yeah. So I'm actually from Minnesota, the freezing cold. But um, I found this place to be family. And Todd actually recruited me as a sophomore in high school. So to be able to kind of call a place home so early, I think, is something that I hold near to my heart because family is super important to me. Um, the number 20 I chose a long time ago. I have a good family friend. Her name's Natalie Darwich. She was an Olympic, Olympic hockey player for the USA team. And she was always just like my role model growing up. So I had it and I've just always kept it or whatever. And then when I made high school volleyball, I was actually number one because it was the smallest jersey they had because I was so tiny at the time. <laughs> so that's the smallest number they had. But my mom would always be in the, in the stands cheering, come on, 20, go 20. So then once college came around, I switched back to 20 as soon as I could. So it's kind of where it stuck. Uh, Amber, how does it feel not to have Aaron out on the court with you this season? It's definitely different. I mean, she actually came back in the fall and was um, – what a student 
coach person. I don't know what her title was. Volunteer says, I don't know. She came back and she was practicing with us all in the fall. So um, I didn't have to adapt so much then, but it's definitely been different not having her there, but having these people like McKenna and Marie, everyone else that I've played with since the beginning there has just like stepped up and like kind of embraced me more. And like, it feels still like family, like even without having my blood there, it's still a family environment that I wouldn't trade for anything. All right. That was uh, Amber Olson. You heard there and McKenna Melville, who they were all in separate places, by the way, this is the zoom era media availability. So that's why they sounded a little different, but it was really, I wanted everybody to listen to them. And obviously I asked questions and our friend trace at uh, Truco asked questions too, but they're so great, well-spoken, but they're so talented. They get it. And and I think they are tremendous people. I want to actually start with Olsen since she was the last one. I want to ask you about Olsen because I have some McKenna stuff I want to bring up. But I want to ask you about Olsen because you, you have pr- talked about Olsen at length. And she's one that's gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit here. Yeah, well, I th- – th- we've known the last couple of years about the – this, and we talked with Todd earlier in the first segment about – that one-two punch at setter between her and her sister Erin, her older sister Erin, who graduated last year, and and Erin was such a you know tremendous stabilizing force for the team. You know, I go back to 2019. Remember, Amber suffered an injury right at the very end of the regular season, and so you yep. see, up when when we were hosting the NCAA's, she wasn't available for that first round match against FGCU, and nothing against FGCU. They were a very good team, um, but I still believe that UCF beats them. And you told court. me that going in, like, I, and let me let, yeah. let me defend you on that. You told me before in, you did not feel good going in there because of that. You right. knew about it going in, right? I, 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 if she wasn't out there, I was like, okay, this this is going to be rough. Not because of the lack of, you know, anybody else. It's just that she was, you know, she really was a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a real stabilizing force for the team. Well, she's moved on now. I think we saw a lot of growth out of Amber. Uh, last year and you know how, how how Todd was talking about how Amber liked to take a few more chances than Aaron did but uh I, I do think that you know it, and Amber was coming off of a little bit of an injury that she suffered over the offseason she's going to be it she should be in good shape and I'm really excited to see what Dresi Pass gets to do because as Todd said you know she's she was the starter going into last year and then things just kind of got into the shuffle but um I think that 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 everything should come out just perfectly fine in terms of the setter position. I think where UCF is really going to need a little bit more, you know, really going to have to find some things out is who is that player that, uh, that spells McKenna Melville on the, uh, both on her side, right? Because it was Christina Fisher last year. So who's her second in command on the left side? And then who steps in for where, Ali Sable last year was we saw quite a bit of Mackenzie Chambers in the first part of last year and Todd said obviously she ran out of gas I can't wait to see what she's able to do out there both she and her sister Morgan because they are so so talented and uh and basically did and didn't get you know we didn't see any of Morgan last year and we saw maybe a third of the season from Mackenzie last year on the right side so I mean this team is freaking stacked and I I I just you're right. I'm concerned about, you know, if you get off to a slow start, like it's like football season. It is football season. Basically, it's 16 games. So it is. Yeah. And and again and again, it, there's things you can't control that, you know, that you have to kind of watch. But I will say this, you know, you listen to McKenna talk. I'm so impressed with her 
from a leadership standpoint, being vocal. She, she's so funny, great personality, but understands the game. She could tell in her voice she has the passion for the game. And I think, you know, I asked Todd about it. You don't, you don't teach that. You either have it or you don't, and she does. And, you know, she's got a great one-two punch with her and Anne-Marie Watson. You heard what she said about Watson, and you've heard what Coach Dagenet said about Watson. Two dynamic players, Jeffrey. I want to give you these stats real quick on these two players, starting with McKenna. She's already in two years, has over 800 digs in her career, okay, averaging 3.3 digs in per set, which right now would rank her fourth all-time. She's on pace to finish in the top three, top four all-time in digs. Kills, she is right now on pace to break the record by Renetta Menchikova, has over 2,100 kills. She's in the UCF Athletics Hall of Fame. She's got a shot to break that, even prior to all this going on. She's got a chance to be the sixth player in history to have over 1,000 kills, over 1,000 digs. Uh, she's averaging four and a half kills per set. She ranks third all time. She owns the se- She would own the season, uh, single season record in kills. How do you, you know the vocabulary about this? It's what is it? The pre-rally era or the rally era? The rally, the, the uh, it was in the rally, pre-rally scoring era. This is when in order to, in order to win a point, you had to win it on serve. Wow. So you could you could go a while without like you know if you just if you just traded side out for side out you could you know no one would score a point you know now of course we have rally scoring which means that you know someone scores a point on every uh, on every uh, right which makes it more tougher to, yeah right it makes it tougher so nothing against Menchikova or Harper who obviously are Hall of Famers iconic players in the program but they had more opportunities to add up on the stats than McKenna has and yet McKenna has a shot if she, in their four years to break that record. It tells you all about her. And then Watson, I, we, me and Dajanay mentioned this. She is currently second all-time in blocks assist with 378 behind Tyra Harper at 475. She's fourth all-time in total blocks with 395. Harper holds the record at 631. Delena Sarden, 462. Piper Morgan, 439. That's great company. I mean, and, and, and Todd mentioned it, and I think he's right, Jeffrey. You could argue that Watson might be the greatest blocker. He said it's the best one he's ever had. She's in the conversation for the best all-time at UCF because I remember when I told you the numbers in the offseason when I was doing my uh, UCF all-time series, Greatest Athletes, you were stunned considering the position that she plays. Yeah, and I still just don't think she gets enough credit, and I really hope that you know that, that the conference really sees – Amory Watson for how good for how good that she is, and really the nation should see it too because um, it, it, she she was such a find for UCF, and she's just this quiet warrior, and uh, and she is a real joy to watch when you see how fundamentally sound she is defensively. As Todd was talking about, she's the best pure blocker he's ever seen, and then on top of the fact that she can that, that she's just an aggressive attacker. I mean, she's. Uh, and, and that's and that's such a weapon to have with Anne Marie and McKenna. You know, one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough with McKenna is how good of a defensive player she is. And of course, that comes from when she was starting out as a libero, but uh, it, when she was in high school, before she grew like six inches over over the course of like one year. And it, it, I mean, that's such a hard thing to manage if you're an opposing coach. Uh, you know, seeing those two players who are so, so good on offense and defense on the outside at the same time. It's just pick your poison. Pick your poison and hope. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's going to be exciting to see. McKenna obviously 
have an opportunity and Emory Watts. It'll be great to see them, and we'll see what happens this spring. It's going to be exciting. Short season, though. It's a sprint, right? Like, is that how you describe this, right? It's got to be. Like, it's like a sprint. Like, normally you're used to yeah. playing, what, 30 matches? It's cut in half. Yeah, it's it's usually about 30 matches, but 16 right now, is, it's, man, it's just a sprint. It's, it's a sprint to the finish. And, you know, hopefully they get hot at the right time heading into that conference tournament in Cincinnati. I mean, Cincinnati's going to be not as good as they were, but still good. Well, they're fascinating, right? Because yeah. they don't have Jordan Thompson. That's the big question with Coach Ivy and company. Yeah. How do they look without Jordan Thompson? The well, they, one they, year- they do have Maria Mallon, though, who was very good, right? really good. We like there were there were times when watching her on the other side of Jordan Thompson, or I should say, spelling Jordan Thompson at times, where I was like, "Whoa, she's going to be a problem." And uh, and she was a along with McKenna Melville. And Lily Heim of SMU and Rachel Wolf of SMU and Lexi Douglas of Tulane. She was a unanimous preseason all-conference team selection. She's going to be somebody to watch this year. Would you say that group you just mentioned, is that your kind of your, is you handicap it? Those are your kind of front runners for the player of the year race? I, I would say it's between, right now it's between McKenna Millville, um, Maria Mallon, and I would put um, Lily Heim and Lexi Douglas up there. Lexi's, the, Lexi's a senior. Um be careful what you what we talk about with uh, with. I want to see what Bree Wood from ECU does. If she has a big season, that's going to be that's going to be fun to watch too. So it's going to be a competitive season. So it gets underway uh, for the UCF Knights on uh, January twenty fifth. That's this coming Monday. Uh, an exhibition against FAU. Don't forget, there's the black and gold scrimmage on Friday, January twenty second, and then the regular season officially gets underway the day after that FAU exhibition, Tuesday, January twenty sixth. 4 p.m. at the venue, UCF takes on FAU. The Knights have their first six matches at home against Stetson, UNF twice, and Tulane twice. Miami's coming on the 26th. ECU on March 5th and 6th, and then South Florida March 26th and 27th before the AAC tournament in Cincinnati. So, listen, before we get before we get going, huge thanks to head coach Todd Dagenet for joining us on the show. Huge thanks to Sean Asher for getting uh, all this together. Huge thanks huge thanks to McKenna Melville and Amber Olson for, uh, for for them spending time with us as well during the media availability. Uh, it's going to be a fun season, Eric. It is, man. It'll be great to see them a little later than normal, but it uh, doesn't make it less exciting. Uh, some yep. great players there. Hope people appreciate it and uh, hope for the best for everybody there. It'll be weird. It'll be double speed. So here's to everyone staying healthy and uh, and who knows, the third straight AAC championship could be in the cards for UCF if everything comes out all right for eric lopez and jeff sharon i'm jeff sharon saying (laughs) thanks for listening to our 2021 spring ucf volleyball preview we'll catch you again next week with some more previews and of course our regular show that comes out on thursday morning until then enjoy the weekend